Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sebarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm good. Listeners, Aaron and a mutual friend was over for dinner. They were over for dinner last night. We had a we had a, a charming conversation. All sorts of all sorts of topics. I don't remember what what do we what do we what did we cover? You know, God, politics, the the, yeah. the usual good stuff. Yeah. Why the, Charles is conservative. Why I'm a conservative. Yeah. It's a question I've thought a lot. No, the, the the mutual friend said he was he's a, he's a Maryland resident like me and said he was he was skeptical of you know marijuana legalization. I said, oh, you joined me and you know one third of Marylanders in voting against marijuana legalization in the state. He's like, well, I don't vote actually. And I was like, well, you missed out. You yeah. lost badly. I think it was a third. I think it was like two to one. Really? Um, I took I took my stand. It's fine. No, I was explaining to you my heuristics for voting. Like I voted when I when I was voting the school board primaries, I just went through and I looked and I voted against. I, I looked at which candidates said they didn't support cops in schools, and I voted against them. Right, right. Yeah. That's yeah. probably a pretty good proxy. It's a good anyway, It's the, the the same thing. Like you know, nobody knows. Like you elect judges in Maryland. Nobody knows like what the you know how to how to assess the quality of judges. So I was just like, which of these people is a former prosecutor? I would vote for them and nobody else. <laughs> I have my priorities in order. I know, I know, I know what my values are, and I vote my values. It's good. No, but this mutual, Even... this mutual friend was sort of skeptical of the value of voting in general, which you know, I, 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 I sort of share, but I, 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 there's a signaling value to it. I guess that you know that 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 relates to our topic today in a in a roundabout way, doesn't it, Aaron? Indeed, because Charles, today we are going to be talking about democracy, democracy, and foreign policy. Topics. Very easy stuff. Yeah, light topics, yeah. the nature of political order. But so so to narrow it a little bit, in in the early aughts, there was something called the Bush Freedom Agenda. It was basically a, a ambitious plan by President George W. Bush to spread democracy around the world, including the Middle East. Then, as we all know, Iraq and other things happened, and the whole concept of democracy promotion somewhat fell into disrepute on, on both the right and the left, at least in, in certain ways. Today, we're going to be talking to someone who is essentially a believer in the Bush freedom agenda, but also a fierce critic of the way that the United States has behaved in the Middle East and the way it's tried or not tried to promote democracy. More specifically, we're going to talk about the tension between democratization and liberalization, especially in the Middle East, Anyone who follows really any kind of debates about both foreign policy or about America's own kind of domestic situation will know that there is a a certain style of commentary that sees democracy and liberalism as intimately intertwined. We hear the phrase liberal democracy as if there are no other real kinds. People question whether people, well, they don't question, they just assert that illiberal, so-called illiberal democracies like Viktor Orban's Hungary aren't even democracies. And basically what our guest argues, and we'll, we'll get to him in a minute, is that in, in foreign policy, especially in the Middle East, it's not actually possible to promote democracy without, to some extent, undermining liberalism. And essentially his argument, and I'm paraphrasing, and he can you know get into the nuances in a minute, but essentially his argument is, that's fine, we should promote democracy anyway, even when it has outcomes that we secular liberals in the West dislike. So it's a big episode. We're going to be talking about 
both the way that U.S. foreign policy works and also about kind of the normative justifications for democracy, what it is, why we should value it, whether it's only an instrumental good, a means to an end, or whether it's good in itself. So big topics. Before we introduce our guest, Charles, what's your take on this? Yeah, you know, I... I, I have a number of subject matter areas in which I work, in which I have, if not expertise, then certainly competence. And foreign policy is not among them. So I'm always very wary about having foreign policy opinions because, you know, I sort of understand the particulars of American domestic policy are complex enough that trying to grasp the particulars of many countries' policies and how they interact with one another is beyond my ken. But I am interested in the conflict between liberalism and democracy as, as sort of a partisan of democracy myself, a sympathizer to democracy over and above liberalism. I'm I'm interested in how our guest, you know, in in our guest case, but also, you know, as 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 someone who, you know, I'm I'm willing to bite a lot of democratic, pro democratic, anti liberal bullets. I'm not sure if our guest is willing to do that, so I'll be I'll be interested to see that. So, you know, I'm I'm interested more in the theory angle of this conversation than I am in the the particulars of the foreign policy. Although I think we'll use one to get to the other. Aaron, what are you what are you interested in this week? Yeah, well, so I'm in the same boat. I'm not really qualified to have strong foreign policy opinions, and so I typically don't take them. But I will say this, it it has always struck me as a kind of curious contradiction that the the same people who promote, who say we need to promote democracy around the world, often are not very attuned to what the U.S. public itself actually thinks, right? There's a bit of a conflict or a tension between saying we must promote this form of government where everyone has a voice on the one hand, you know, and then you say that. And yet in the United States, I think it's fair to say that public sentiment has in many ways turned against that kind of crusading mentality, which is an interesting tension and one I want to kind of push our guest on because I think he's thought very deeply about these questions and has kind of worked out a theory, not just of U.S. foreign policy, but also of democracy itself and how we ought to conceptualize it. So without further ado, let me let us bring in our guest. Today, we're going to be talking to Shadi Hamid. He's a fellow at the Brookings Institution, a writer for The Atlantic, the co-host of the Wisdom of Crowds podcast, which full disclosure, I've appeared on twice, and the author of many books, most recently, The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, and the Rise and Fall of an Idea. Shadi, welcome to Institutionalized. Thanks so much for having me. That was quite the buildup. I look forward to the conversation. Well, yeah, so we 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 like to start with kind of an opening provocative question and I think there's a pretty direct one for you. What is democracy and why is it good? Easy stuff. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So we're getting right to it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So democracy so p- part of what I try to do in my work and in, in in this new book is decouple small d democracy from small l liberalism. So as you said in your intro, oftentimes when people say the word democracy, they're being lazy and they really mean liberal democracy. I think that that's a mistake analytically and also creates some normative problems as well. So democracy to me is fundamentally about the alternation of power through regular elections. It's about responsiveness to the voting public. It's about reflecting majority sentiment to one degree or another. In that sense, it's a conflict regulation mechanism because transfer of power is key to deciding who rules and who governs. And that is a beautiful thing about democracy in my view is that 
it removes the guesswork when a, a dictator or or authoritarian leader dies or passes from the scene. You don't have to worry too much about the selection process because the selection process is institutionalized. At a deeper philosophical level, you know, sometimes when people ask me to sum up democracy in a sentence, it's probably not advisable to do that. But if I had to, I would say democracy to me is about the right to make the wrong choice. That's really important to me. And that's where people start to get some, to have some real disagreements with me. Now, so that's, and yeah, so in that sense, democracy is a mechanism, but it's also an end unto itself. That we should value democracy, not because of its outcomes, but irrespective of its outcomes. Can I can I just point something out, flag for, for later? You said for you, democracy is about the right to make the wrong choice. It's interesting that you want to distinguish democracy from liberalism and say these are these are really not the same thing they shouldn't be conflated because one of the arguments people get for liberalism is they'll say well liberalism is about the right to make the wrong choice people should be free to make the wrong choice so it's interesting that you while you know being a critic of kind of the prioritization of liberalism over democracy then defend democracy in terms of the right to do wrong which is I, I I typically think of as a more kind of classically liberal value. That's definitely not a liberal value now. Now you yes, might be now it's not. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and maybe I would just add a qualifier. I sure. would say the right to make the wrong choice through the ballot box. Maybe yeah. that's one way sure. of sure. distinguishing it. I really take voting quite seriously, conceptually, and I know that Charles just mentioned that he you know has some doubts about the utility of his vote. And I, you know, I do too. And if you look at it from a certain perspective, you can always make the argument that one vote is one vote. But I think what voting represents for me is agency, that each individual is being asked for their consent or lack thereof as it relates to certain leaders or political parties. And that's a really good thing, just to feel like we we have some say because we do. I mean, whatever whatever people want to say about the flaws of American democracy, you know, we do choose our leaders. People might take issue with how we choose them and the exact procedures, but, you know, we don't live under an authoritarian regime. On, on liberal, you know, on liberalism, I would, I would say that, you know, one difficulty about talking about liberalism, it's you sort of get into this situation of a no true Scotsman fallacy are people talking about liberalism as they wish it was or as it once was, or are they talking about actually existing liberalism? And sure, I mean, classical liberalism in theory is great, and I consider myself part of the classical liberal tradition. I just don't believe that classical liberalism really is a thing in real life, for the most part, increasingly, especially as the nation state has accumulated more and more power, the centralization of authority. I mean, how many classically liberal states are there really? So so ultimately, when we are discussing how we feel about liberalism, we do have to contend with what liberalism has become. So so let's I wanna I wanna sort of give you the opportunity to talk about your the 
the specifics of your thesis, but B, sort of ground this just a little bit. You're specifically interested in the American democracy promotion agenda abroad, particularly in the Middle East. Can you talk in sort of broad strokes about what you think that the history of that agenda, how it's gone right, how it's gone wrong, and sort of how you think we should prior reprioritize it? Yeah. So Aaron said something interesting in his intro that something like, I'm essentially a proponent of the Bush freedom agenda. That's not exactly how I would frame it myself. <laughs> but, you know, I have said in the past, half jokingly, that my ideal foreign policy would basically be the Bush freedom agenda minus the Iraq war. Of course, you can't really disentangle those. Yeah. And I just want to make clear that it's a bit of a long story, but I went through a bit of an evolution in the early to mid 2000s. You know, I'm part of the post 9-11 generation. You know, my my first real political activism was in the anti-war movement, specifically the anti-Iraq war. And I thought that was like the dumbest thing ever. But then, But then it's also complicated because do I think that Iraq is better off today without Saddam and for all of its faults and all the destruction that the U.S. caused? Yes, I think if you're choosing between Iraq under Saddam and Iraq not under Saddam and Iraq with democratic elections that sometimes lead to illiberal religious parties coming to power, I mean, to me, the, the, choice, is, the choice is clear. Now, I think where the Bush freedom agenda ran into major issues was, you know, there was a democratic dilemma. We, you know, we as Amer you know, we as Americans, but specifically the Bush administration wanted democracy in theory, believed in democracy in theory, but then wasn't thrilled with the outcomes in practice. And this is the, I mean, this, this is to me the yeah. problem of democracy. And that's why, you know, I titled the book that, because I think we're increasingly realizing that this is what we have to contend with, that democracy is increasingly producing, quote unquote, bad outcomes, not just in the Middle East, but as a sort of like a universal thing, including here in our own country in the U.S. So, I mean, what happened in the freedom agenda was that Islamist parties started doing quite well and sometimes even winning outright. And the kind of peak of this dilemma was when Hamas won the Palestinian elections in January 2006. Yeah, that, that was a problem. And, you know, it's interesting, if you look back at some of George W. Bush's statements, there's this kind of naivete about him that I find quite endearing, which is why I really do think W. was a good man. But it's a lesson that a good man can support terrible policies that have a destructive effect, where one might argue that Donald Trump is a terrible man, but if we actually measure the full extent of the resulting destruction, you could make a viable argument that there was more destruction caused by the Bush administration than the Trump administration, specifically as it relates to foreign wars. So that's just worth that's just worth keeping in mind. But you know, you know, Bush Bush was a believer in the pothole theory of democracy in the book i quote it's a it's a wonderful quote and i wish i had it in front of me but someone is asking him at a press conference basically well in the lebanese elections what if hezbollah you know a group that is still designated as, as a terrorist organization and is a shia islamist party in lebanon 
you know, what if people vote for them a lot? <laughs> and Bush said something like, well, I, know, I, I think people who generally run for office say vote for me. I'm looking forward to fixing your potholes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes, exactly. That is adorable. I kid, that is, I love that Bush said that. It's also not true. But <laughs> so that, that, that is sort of what we're contending with here. But it's also possible that radical parties can be good at filling in the potholes. I mean, that's also part of the complication right. here. Like, what is it intrinsically about a party that has an armed wing that would make them unable to fix potholes? Like, it's not self-evident that there would be a necessary tension there. But the bigger oh, presumption on, on the part of, like, the so-called neocons was they assumed that good things go together. And in this, they sort of shared an overarching liberal premise, which is this kind of arc of historyism, this sense of teleological direction in the broader sweep of history, that there is this kind of movement of history in this almost like autonomous way. And the more of one good thing that you'll have, i.e. democracy, it will produce moderate outcomes, it will produce pro-American outcomes, it will produce secular outcomes, so on and so forth. So so just one thing I want to foreground for our listeners, because they may not know, that in the Middle East, a lot of autocracies are, or at least historically, have not been you know, Muslim autocracies or, or very, very religious autocracies. They've been Western-backed, relatively secular dictators, and many of the democratic movements that have come to challenge them, such as the Arab Spring, you know, ended up being the 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 pro-democracy movement was more Islamist and wanted more religion and public life. So, can you expand a bit on kind of that conflict and walk through a couple examples, maybe from the Obama administration, of where the rubber really met, hit the road, and the question was. Do we keep supporting the secular dictator who doesn't believe in political rights, or do we throw our weight behind the pro-democracy protesters who have social values that we completely disagree with? Yeah. Well, this is one of the reasons why the whole debate around is Islam compatible with democracy is a little bit silly and misleading from my standpoint, because that might be a more relevant question if the dictatorships of the Middle East were Islamically oriented or Islamist. Now, there are there are two Islamist dictatorships, but current, well, depending on how you classify Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia has shifted away from that and has become less, less explicitly Islamist. We also have Iran, obviously. But if you look at most of the dictatorships across the Middle East over the past 70 years or so, they're generally... Secular, I, I hesitate to use the word secular, though, because none of them are truly secular in the way Americans understand mm -hmm. the word. So, for example, there's always ministries of religious affairs as part of the cabinet. Um, and the idea on the part of these dictators is they want to control religious knowledge right. and religious production. And they want to basically make religion subservient to the state. But it, I think it's fair to say that these are relatively more secular autocracies and relatively more progressive autocracies in some cases. If we look at soft authoritarian regimes today, like Morocco and Jordan, they do present themselves as being more progressive on women's rights, on minority rights, on various freedom, aspects of freedom of religion and freedom, freedom of belief up to a point. 
so are they liberal autocracies? I don't like calling them that because there's also a big part of liberalism that is political and not just cultural or religious. And obviously, you don't have the full panoply of of politically liberal rights if you can't attend a protest in the main right. square, right? But certainly in understanding why these regimes have been appealing to Western audiences, we have to look very closely at how they instrumentalize and weaponize progressive ideas. They're basically telling us, hey, you Americans, you say you want democracy, be careful what you wish for, because the people who come to power aren't going to be like full supporters of gender equality. And that's meant to basically put Americans in a bind. Oh, my God, we... I don't mean to like make fun of this, but it is sort of what goes on in in the minds of of you know many well-meaning Americans, which is oh my God, well, you know, gender equality is a cornerstone of democracy. No, it's actually not. But but we can get to some of that later. I mean, the women having the right to vote is a cornerstone of democracy. So universal suffrage is indeed a core component of democracy, even under my minimalist conception of the democratic idea. But gender equality is not. That's something that comes later, or perhaps it doesn't come at all, or it's additional. It's nice. It's it's a good thing to have if you support gender equality. It is more closely associated with liberalism. Right. So, and then I'll just say on on, if we fast forward to the Obama administration and their reaction to the Arab Spring, we see similar dilemmas. I mean, Obama was more intellectually open to the idea of Islamist parties participating and contesting elections, in part because, let's just say, he's the most Islamically oriented president in American history. Because he's a secret and, Muslim, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. But obviously, I mean, Other yeah, well, that. look, I mean, he certainly was more aware of of Islam and, uh, you know, both of his, his father, biological father and his stepfather were both Muslim. I mean, what were the, you know, what are the chances of that? I said, you know, I suppose his mom liked, you know, Muslim men, which I, you know, I, I have no issue with. I actually probably support that, but it just means that, yeah, it means <laughs> that he was, I think, inclined intellectually to be a little bit more understanding of cultural or religious difference, but even Obama, we see this profound disillusionment. He's optimistic in the beginning about the Arab Spring. And, you know, you know, as part of the research for my book, I, I did a lot of interviews with senior Obama officials, including those who were in the room with him at, at key decision points. And this keeps on coming up in the interviews that some Obama really it was almost like he felt betrayed by the Middle East, that he had allowed himself to to share in the hope of some of his younger aides, folks like Ben Rhodes and Samantha Power. But then look what happened. And he's like, oh, I shouldn't. It's almost like he's I shouldn't have believed in this. I shouldn't have believed in this. And you start to see a lot of language from Obama about the tribal and religious passions of the Middle East. And I've argued that Obama is basically a Huntingtonian at heart. You see, a, you see this clash of civilizations language, and I think it's been underreported, underappreciated. But if you look at a pattern of remarks and statements in a lot of different settings, he thinks that Arabs are basically tribal and kind of hopeless, that they can't get their act together 
and he makes jokes and you know that what if only he basically wants Arabs to be Scandinavians like there's so there's one quote to that effect basically and this is where the technocratic bias of Obama really comes out so again we have this dilemma that Obama like any American is in theory supportive of democracy and people contesting elections but then when he saw the results he fell into some of the same and, and more so than Obama his his some of his senior aides as well I mean John Kerry and Chuck Hagel, the Secretary right. of State and Defense, respectively, were like kind of anti-democracy, even in a way that Obama wasn't. So Obama was at least, you know, morally conflicted. He didn't feel comfortable with the coup in Egypt that happened in 2013 after the Muslim Brotherhood came to power, you know, after consecutive elections, where Kerry and Hagel are kind of like okay with the idea of dictators restoring order right so so let me let me ask it about a, a a critique of this view because you know there's a long and story tradition both in western political thought broadly american democratic tradition which is basically like not all cultures are conducive to democratic self-rule you have to have certain collective notions right like you have to believe that it's better to rule yourself or to rule yourselves collectively than it is for the strong man to have power. You have to believe in the equality of men in certain ways. You have to believe in, are you talking about democracy? And many cultures throughout human history have not had these values, right? I think one of our, one of our recent guests, Garrett Jones, talks about the, the, the fragility of Western liberal values and, these, and, the, and the durability of people's values in, in migration. So, so do you think that this is not even necessarily a question about the Middle East, but abstractly about cultures in general. There are some cultures that are not competent to democracy. There are some civilizations that are not competent to democracy that are better suited to autocratic rule in the, you know, in the in, in, in the Aristotelian model. Yeah, that is that is one of the common objections. And let me just say that I disagree profoundly with that view. So okay. So the argument, it's sort of like a tautological argument, too, because people are saying that to deserve democracy, you need to first have a democratic culture. But then it's unclear how you can have a democratic culture without democracy. Like, how does how does how does a group of people come to develop these habits of democracy under authoritarian rule? I mean, that's never made clear. And I think it's pretty difficult to learn the habits of democracy if you're being oppressed by a strongman because you're not actually practicing, you're not actually voting. You can read about voting in you know, graduate school or in your studies, but if you're not actually experiencing it in your real life, then, I mean, there's a bit of a gap there. And, you know, America didn't always have a democratic culture. And one might argue that America doesn't really have a democratic culture right now. I mean, that's apparently the argument that a growing number of left of center liberal commentators are making that the unwashed masses can't be trusted with the right to vote because they might vote incorrectly. That's an increasingly common view. Or how, how do we feel about Sweden where like a proper far-right party with like actual roots in neo-Nazi ideology is the largest party in the governing coalition after the September elections. Does that mean that Swedes don't have a democratic culture? So on and so forth. So I think that these things are, I mean, cultures also are dynamic. They're not static. They change over time. And I see democracy sort of like riding a bike. You do it and you learn how to do it. And then sometimes you'll stay on the bike 
but sometimes you'll fall off and hurt yourself. But the only way you'll ever have a real shot of learning how to ride a bike for more than a couple minutes without falling is you keep on getting back up. So, so people might say, well, oh, well, Egypt tried democracy during the Arab Spring in 2011 to 2013. But then look, there was a military coup. Well, does a military coup necessarily mean that there wasn't a democratic culture? Or does it mean that the Egyptian military was disproportionately powerful and had what amounted to a green light from the Obama administration? Is there a counterfactual history that we can imagine where Obama made very clear what the consequences of a coup would be in the 10 days that led up to the coup itself and actually threatened severe consequences, and those threats were credible. I mean, there is an alternate history there. So, and you know, people said similar things about Catholic countries in Latin America, but much of Latin America now is at least procedurally democratic. I mean, the list goes on. Japanese Is Japanese culture democratic? I mean, that's not the first word that would come to mind when describing Japanese culture, but Japan is, you know, relatively democratic. I mean, people can take issue with the fact that one party has dominated for most of the post-war period, but there has been there has been some alternation of power, minimal, but you know, people still have the right to vote and make free choices and so forth. So, I mean, that's sort of how how I would respond to it. I'm just very the idea of sequentialism makes me nervous because it's basically telling people that they have to wait to be able to choose their leaders, but how long do they have to wait? Is it a generation? Is it two? When does a society or a group actually become, quote unquote, ready for democracy? And one answer might be that they never really get, they're never really ready. And this is basically an argument that a lot of my own relatives in Egypt make. They don't believe in democracy. They don't think that ordinary Egyptians should have the right to vote. That is, you know, oddly enough, a kind of popular secular elite viewpoint. Arabs don't Arabs Arabs aren't ready for democracy and I in fact I hear that argument much more from Arabs these days than I do from Americans because Americans you know thankfully for you know wokeness does have its purposes there are certain things that used to be said and now like if you're a self-respecting person you're not going to be like oh are Arabs you know ready for democracy because you just know that you're not supposed to say that yeah I mean I was I was going to just to to I don't want to spend too much time on this, but to add on to Charles's thing, I mean, I, I think another way to maybe get at this is is a prerequisite for democracy for the people to rule themselves is for there to be a certain kind of state or state-like entity capable of transmitting the preferences of the public into law and into a kind of regularized governance. It doesn't have to be liberal governance, but it does have to be, you know, actual like law. I mean, I think that is something that we take a, take to be a precondition for meaningful democracy. And the, the example that came to my mind is maybe the strongest challenge to, you know, can everyone really have democracy would not be something like Egypt, but would be something more like Afghanistan, where you heard these reports of it being so corrupt and tribal that it was hard to set up even any kind of like functioning state kind of even even before you get to the question of democracy and and that might be the bigger challenge although that yeah although i i mean even to make that argument is kind of a concession to your view shoddy insofar as you know that it's not really that 
Afghanis say under the under this argument don't have a democratic culture. It's that they need there need to be there are cultural prerequisites for the formation of the institutions required to make democracy run. But it's yeah. not necessary. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like a different view that's maybe more defensible. I, I don't know what you think of that. But. Yeah, you know, I, I actually I, I I like that way of putting it. It is an interesting question what the cultural prerequisites of state formation are, and one could kind of still say that there are certain things about Islamic culture that make it harder to establish a state and rule of law. But that's not, I don't think that really holds up because there are any yeah. number of Muslim majority states that clearly do right. have right. somewhat functioning states with the monopoly over the use of force. And, you know, there's variables like intervening variables in the case of Afghanistan that when you've experienced civil war for decades, that probably makes it harder to rebuild or build a state. Now you could say, well, why has Afghanistan had so many civil wars? And you can always fall back on a cultural explanation if you really want to. Sure. But uh, there's also there's also weak state, like non-functioning states where there is democracy. So for example, Lebanon is not exactly a model. It is relatively more democratic than the rest of the region. It also doesn't, it's also a failed state. So you can theoretically have democracy in failed states. Yeah. So, 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 so I think we want to move on to sort of some of these deeper philosophical yeah. questions about democracy, but, but so one thing is you mentioned a few minutes ago, you basically were distinguishing between political and social rights and saying, look, you know, women having the right to vote, that's essential for democracy. Women having full gender equality as defined by the UN or as defined by woke liberals at Freedom House, maybe not so much. Okay. I, I want to push a little on this because I, I think it's, it's, it can be harder to differentiate between these two things th than you're making it out to be. So what if hypothetically, and again, I'm not saying this is the case in any particular country, but just suppose there were a country where a lot of women it could be a Muslim majority country, it could be some other kind of really traditional religious country. The women thought that by having the right to vote, they would be disrupting the kind of natural patriarchal order of the family that they themselves believed in. And so they... And they think that actually us having the right to vote isn't what we want, right? Mm. And and the men too. In that case, if every, if basically if everyone in the country, including women, agree women shouldn't have the right to vote, is it really democratic to insist on women's suffrage in that context? Because it seems like you could imagine a situation like that. And and that does present sort of some some interesting questions about what freedom or what Okay, so you're really saying are. that if you have a large enough number of voters who don't believe that they themselves should have the right to vote. Yeah, and potentially they believe that because they think that they're not having the right to vote is an integral component of some other, of, of a vision for society that they want to realize, right? Yeah, so, so I, you know, theoretically, I mean, of course it is possible for voters to vote for you know, a strong man who then ushers in an autocratic, a new, a new autocratic situation. I, I don't think that people have the right to do that because then you're removing future generations or you're removing your own right for years thereafter to change your mind. So basically in my, in, in, in my minimalistic conception of democracy, 
there has to be the right to recourse. There has to be an ability or possibility of changing one's mind. And you can't block that opportunity for others. Right. Also, you're catching, you would also only capture a snapshot of preferences in one particular election. And who's to say that that is the definitive word about, you know, whether it should be some authoritarian monarchy. So that at a very minimal level, like people People don't yeah. have the right to. Yeah, yeah. Does, does that sort of answer it? No, it makes it makes it makes sense. I just think it's. I. I the reason I ask is because it, it seems to. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't destroy the kind of ideal type distinction you're making between political and social rights. But I do think it suggests, right? Like, but, like if, if if really everyone has to have the right to vote, there are going to be probably a lot of places that don't like that idea. Either they don't want women to vote or there's some small minority that the rest of the country doesn't want to vote. And if you yeah. insist on rights for them, I mean, you are in, in the foreign policy context, it seems like that is going to imply a certain degree of, I mean, you don't have to call it liberalism or, or trying to promote liberalism, yeah, I see what but you, you, mean. you are going to be imposing a particular vision on those countries, right? Yeah. Okay. So look, I think the act of voting has no inherent ideological content from my perspective. Mm. So in other words, it doesn't tell us about anyone's preferences about the nature of the good or the ends of politics. There is no information that we have as observers if all mm. we know is that people are voting. And that's where I make this very careful distinction between political liberalism and social or cultural liberalism. The mm. latter is concerned with ends the former is concerned with means. So for example, whether public gatherings of more than 100 people are permitted, that doesn't tell us about what that public gathering of people actually want from politics. It only tells us that they have the means to express mm -hmm. whatever their preferences may or may not be. They could be socialist, communist, Islamist, liberals, whatever, it, you know, so that that is how I mm -hmm. think about the distinction. Now there are there are cases where it it might become a little bit more blurry, and there's no way to have always a very clear dichotomy. But that's the kind of guideline that that I'm hoping people can follow a little bit more closely mm -hmm. in terms of how they think about the democratic idea. Another example is you know laws restricting the right to consume alcohol. That that is about the ends of politics. Or and so so electorates should have the right. So if there's a democratically elected yeah. parliament that wants to restrict alcohol, we, again we don't have to like any of this. We just have to respect it as democratically legitimate. The same thing that if an elected majority wants to restrict abortion, abortion is not intrinsic. The right to an abortion is not intrinsic to the democratic idea. And we saw in our own context in America, a lot of people would say, "Oh." Republicans are fascist and authoritarian, and one of the reasons is they're trying to restrict abortion access. That's a dumb argument. It just like it's, and I don't even know if people are actually making it in good faith or if it's just a rhetorical gambit. But people should at least be self-aware that that's like a nonsensical position. So, but also, so these are all things that I think we have to be we have to be willing to respect. The, these sorts of outcomes, regardless of whether or not we agree right. with them or like them. So blasphemy laws is another example. Should a parliament have a right to put restrictions on insulting prophets and divine texts? 
Well, if that's what the parliament wants, it doesn't affect your political participation because you can always you can always vote next time around for a party that wants to undo that blasphemy law or wants to make speech more permissive because all of this is a continuum. And of course, much of Europe has stricter hate speech laws and laws around Holocaust denial. So it's all it's always a question of where we draw the line. So, so, so I feel like we haven't asked, and this is sort of the key question: is why democracy can lead to bad outcomes. I mean, you know, I I may have a contention with liberalism. There's lots of good things that happen from liberalism. Why is it good to have a democratic system that produces arbitrary bad outcome numbers? You know, if if 95% of the people vote to genocide, the other 5% is democratically legitimate. Why is that a system we should desire? No, no, genocide genocide is not permitted because if you kill people, they no longer have the right to vote. Okay. But, but what if what if we take a vote? What if we take a vote? Do do we genocide this 5% of the population and we give that 5% of the population the right to vote in the in the referendum on genocide? Okay, everyone is we're not, say, we're not we're not going to genocide mean, them. We're just going to put them in jail, right? We can vote. Okay, but that yeah, would also I mean, remove the right to vote. Okay, okay. But, in jail. but I guess wow. I guess this is a, this is another deeper question of like why is it if 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 everyone why has is a democracy say, better than liberalism is the question. Like to, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I know. I yeah. Got it. yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's dive into this yeah. because this is really the heart of the matter. So first of all, I even even if we take as our premise that liberalism is the best or better or whatever mm-hmm. it might be, there's a problem here because we can't necessarily compel people who aren't liberals to become liberals. So it it sort of leaves us at an impasse if we just say liberalism is better full stop it doesn't give us any practical mechanism to actually realize that preferred outcome because a liberal people can't become liberal but they can become democratic yeah yeah anyone can become can respect democratic outcomes it doesn't require them to make a choice between that and their theological premises or convictions you're not asking people to prioritize again a certain conception of the good life that's what makes liberalism challenging and that's why most people aren't actually liberals is because liberalism is an ideological orientation and it's very hard to get people to change their ideological orientation if they don't want to change it or they don't believe i mean liberalism requires liberals at some at some level you need people who believe in the liberal idea so if we if I think about all the people who are involved in American political polarization, I don't think it's asking too much from them to just do one very simple thing. And this is in part the message that I try to take when I speak to different audiences. If I'm speaking to a left-leaning audience, I'll tell them, imagine your worst case scenario for 2024, which presumably would be if Trump wins fair and square, freely and fairly, you know, whatever it might be. Then you have to imagine that and you have to prepare yourself intellectually and emotionally to imagine a situation where you consider that outcome to be legitimate. When I talk to right-leaning audiences, I say, let's imagine someone considerably worse than Joe Biden on the on the side of the Democratic Party, whether it's Kamala or AOC, whoever your, you know, your most hated Democrat is, if they win fair and square through free elections, you have to, again, prepare yourself for the possibility of that. That 
that is not an ideological proposition. That is simply saying to people, this is a procedural mechanism that we're asking you to commit ahead of time with no prior knowledge of what the outcome is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess I I agree that that in certain ways the ask is different, right? With the ask with liberalism is you, you know, don't try to live in a society ordered to your religious conception of the good. The ask in democracy is just, you know, if the people vote for X, you accept X. I guess I, I'm not sure that there's as much difference in practice between those two things as you're making it out to be because if you're a really committed Jew, say, like, look, here's an example. Let's say that the, you know what the intactivist movement is? The, the movement no, that argues so. that, that circumcision is immoral, right? Okay. And bad. Okay. So let's say that, that, that in the United States, that movement just really, really well, and it manages to convince a huge majority of people that circumcision is in unacceptable violation of bodily autonomy and should be banned. So democratic, and so there's like a demo, you know, Congress decides we're banning circumcision. That's we we've democratically done that. And you're a really religious Jew who thinks that that's a you know covenant like that, right? You're you're being asked, yes, you're being asked. Well, just respect the people's will, but the people's will is that you cannot honor your covenant with God. I mean. You know, and you can imagine more extreme situations. It's like it's okay, like how are you mm. supposed to tell people to accept that? That's that's really that does seem to be where it's it's actually in some ways it's actually hard to have once you're in a society with a lot of pluralism, it's hard to just insist on this minimalist conception of democracy because it it can result in people facing existential choices where it's either respect the will of the people and you know, break my covenant with God or keep my covenant with God and defy the law and the legitimate political authority. Yeah, well, first of all, this hypothetical, while intriguing, is not possible in the American context because a law like that would be struck down. It would be a clear constitutional yes. violation. Yeah, but that would be but what if, But what if, no, right, no, no, exactly. no, no, but- No, but I know, I know. Very, but I'm very clear, look, I'm very clear in the book that all of these contexts have- some kind of constitutional framework. There's no way to talk about real life without saying that, like what, there is no society where there would be no, no, no prior framework. There is going to be some kind okay, of so, basic law or constitution that's already in place. Like, what about that? Just the way. What about it, a I, Muslim? Okay, but so, so what if what if there's you know the, the, the you French know, class is leste, right? Yeah, uh, public mandatory secularism. It, it, there, there, there's certain contexts in which this could conceivably be mandatory. Oh yeah, no, that's I, I was just about to right. move towards like the French. Yeah. I want to thank okay, yeah, because I wanted to mention the French example because this does happen in France. Yeah, so and, let's let's do that example. That's more. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I just want to make clear to people that in America, we yeah, don't have to sure. worry about this sure. as Americans. I know. But, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So the French, you know, there is a law on conspicuous religious symbols that do precisely what you're warning against, Aaron, that it basically tells a large number of observant Muslim women that they cannot honor their covenant with God in certain public or state institutions. Now, they can wear their hijab in the street, but you know, if they're a teacher in a state school yeah. or at certain levels of of education, this is very much an issue. So you're putting you're putting you know many French Muslims 
in this kind of untenable situation where they have to choose between these competing goods. I don't like it. And it's actually like, I'm, I'm very outspoken. I, and you know, some people think that I have it out for France because I am pretty regularly critical of France and for precisely this reason. At the same time, do French voters have the right to impose this particular understanding of secularism on their fellow citizens? Unfortunately, there's only one answer I can reach, and that is, yes, they have the right. So we can oppose this, we can criticize it, we can lament it. But at the end of the day, French voters have a right to reflect their civilizational preferences and imperatives in their politics. Because basically, if we say the French can't do that, it means that no one can reflect civilizational or cultural or ideological preferences through the democratic process. I think there's some extremely scary things happening in India and in terms of criminalizing journalism that's that's critical of the ruling regime. And I'm, and I'm willing to highlight that. I'm not a huge fan when people highlight beef bans on the local level, because I do think that if you have a really religious Hindu district or locality that if they if this is really important to them that beef should not be served at restaurants in that particular geographical area on what premises can we say that they can't do that like what exactly is the overarching premise there and and you know it's not you're not required to eat beef if you're muslim so it's also not even really violating one's covenant with God. So I just think that we there's a lot of these kinds of examples. And are we basically saying that people can't reflect their ideological preferences through the democratic process? To me, that's scary because it essentially limits what democracy is. You're basically saying democracy is only plausible or possible under a constraining liberal framework which is a coercive act ultimately, you're basically then conceding. I mean, everything is coercion in the end. Everything is a question of power. I mean, maybe that's one way of approaching it too. Someone is deciding what the ideological orientation is. Why is it only liberals who have the right to impose an ideological orientation on the citizenry? Like what, mm -hmm. like you would have to be able to answer why that is the case. And it's not clear to me, but on a very basic level, I just don't think it's practical. And I think that, especially in societies where a large majority are skeptical or critical of the classical liberal tradition, again, it's not clear to me how you compel a majority of non-liberals to accept liberal constraints indefinitely. Yeah, so so we've talked now about the U.S., we've talked about France, we've talked about Egypt. We're going to wrap up in a few minutes, so we want to end by talking about a very uncontroversial, normal country that doesn't arouse any strong feelings, and that would be Israel. Oh, which is a big, didn't see that which coming. Is a big, wow. Which is a big focus of your book. So so one of the things you talk about, right, Shadi, is that one reason why the U.S. leaders and even and kind of the deep state in the U.S. has been very resistant to more aggressive forms of democracy promotion and to sort of really pressuring secular Arab regimes to democratize through financial and other leverage. One reason we don't really want to do that is because 
as you say, the publics in a lot of these countries are more anti-Israel than the leaders. And so if you depose the kind of secular Western-backed authoritarians, you will end up potentially with a region that's a lot more hostile to Israel and and be like Israel for various reasons, both both geopolitical, but also cultural. So I guess I sort of- Israel's a nice place. Yeah, Charles is our resident Zionist. So we have- Oh, we have to pay your bills. Right. So we have, yes, they, they, yes, they pay both of our bills. But, but so, so, so I guess one thing is just if you could elaborate briefly on sort of this, this dynamic and how it affects institutional foreign policy. And then the other deeper question I want to ask you is, okay, let's say that the majority of American citizens they say we like Israel and we've decided it's in our interest to, you know, promote it. That's the democratic outcome is, you know, prioritizing Israel over the democratization of the rest of the Middle East. What do you what do you say to those voters? Because, I mean, it seems like the Democratic outcome, visa, you know, internal to the U.S. is a policy that does not promote democracy in the Middle East if most of the voters don't like the outcomes. of promoting. Well, that's not even a hypothetical. That is yeah. the way it is and has been. That is yeah. literally what we have now. I don't like it. I argue against it. But, you know, what can I do? Like, you got to respect you got to respect right, right. whatever. And I, I, but it's not as if the people themselves are deciding that this is the foreign policy they want, but their elected representatives mm. are deciding to lean in a particular direction, which makes it hard to institute a different approach in, in Middle East policy. And one of my goals is to try to change that over time through our, you know, through persuasion through making different arguments mm. that can appeal to decision makers, policy makers, and ordinary Americans too. Mm. You know, that's, but that's what I would apply to everything. You know, sure. I don't, there's a lot of democratic outcomes I don't like. I have to live with them. And I, I live to fight another day and make a different case now. But on, on the bigger issue of Israel, yes, I think that this is really at, at the heart of the matter. And in some ways in the book, I, I try to bring Israel back into the conversation. Because tr historically, I was someone who felt that Israel was a distraction. And I think with the Arab Spring, there was this sense that, oh, Israel isn't a central obstacle. It isn't the cause of all the Middle East problems because Arabs are protesting their own governments and focusing on their own dictators, and it's less about Israel. However, over time, I think I'm shifting, I mean, I think there's a middle ground where you can say that, okay, yes, the you know the priority for Arab protesters and pro-democracy activists, you know, are their own regimes, obviously. But then we have to ask why these regimes are in place and how they're able to sustain themselves. And part of the reason that they are resilient, these autocrats, is because they tell their American counterparts that, hey, we might be authoritarian but we're going to support certain regional objectives. We're going to talk shit about Israel, but we're not going to actually challenge Israel's dominance or hegemony in the region. Actually, we might actually we might cooperate with Israel more, you know, and that's what we see with the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, three very repressive regimes that are selling themselves in precisely this way. You know, we're good on Israel. We're good on the Abraham Accords. And I think that's an, un an unfortunate 
position. It's not clear to me what, look, it's a bit of a longer conversation. I don't yeah. think that if you have Islamist parties in power that they're going to wage war against Israel. So what I say in the book is we have to we have to countenance the possibility of anti-Israel parties coming to power. And one of the ways we reassure Israel, because you know, our Israeli counterparts are going to be freaked out about that, we say, you know, we have an ironclad security guarantee. We'll make it more ironclad. Mm -hmm. We'll make it explicit. Whatever it takes, we want to say that if anyone tries to wage war on Israel or invade Israel, which is not even really a possibility for the foreseeable future, but let's say in 30 years it somehow becomes possible that there would be guarantees. Because I'm, you know, I'm a believer in a two-state solution. I don't believe that. I believe that Israel has a right to be a Jewish state. And that's where I diverge from some other pro, you know, pro-Palestinian or critical of Israel voices. So that's what I would say. Like there, there is a way to approach this where you can still say to American constituents, we're not throwing Israel under the bus, but right. we're also not gonna hold the freedom of 200 million Arabs hostage to an to to an obsessive sense of Israel's security concerns or paranoia about making sure that nothing, you know, that there can't be any challengers in the region. That's so that's part of it. But I'll also say, I like the example of Israel for a different reason, putting aside how it plays into American foreign policy. When people say, well, are there any successful non-liberal or illiberal democracies? And there is a very successful one. It's the most successful illiberal democracy, as far as I know, in history. And in some ways, it's a model. And there have even been times they were, I mean, maybe they were being like a little bit trolly about it, but I think part, you know, they were also partly serious in, you know, various conversations with Muslim Brotherhood leaders, you know, in talking about different models, they would sometimes refer to Israel as a place where, you know, religious expressions and illiberal expressions actually have a voice in the public debate and are represented in parliament and that sort of thing. And I think that Israelis should be proud of that, even though they just voted in the most right-wing government in their history. But Israel's an example of how it can actually work in practice. I mean, Arabs are second-class citizens. I have no, you know, let's not mince words about that. So let's, I think, move towards wrapping up, but I want to I let you sort of get out on a, on a positive or on a you know, normative note, a takeaway note. So let's say we've sort of granted the premises of your foreign policy directive, we've been installed in Secretary of State. How can the U.S. go about promoting your democratic minimalist vision? What's the what's the strategy? Yeah, well, it would be intense. It would be, I mean, like what I advocate is a full-throated reorientation of our Middle East policy. And by that, I mean that the entire structure of the Middle East is oriented around authoritarian regimes. We have helped put that architecture in place. I believe in dismantling that architecture, you know, through whatever means necessary short of like invading countries. So not nothing, none of what I'm talking about here requires something like the Iraq war. So when people say, oh, well, we don't want to go back to this aggressive democracy promotion. I don't think anyone's actually proposing that we do more Iraq wars, as far as I can tell. What I what I am calling for is using the leverage that we have to 
incentivize authoritarian regimes not to become democracies overnight. That's not realistic, but to become less repressive. I'm not even being that idealist. I'm saying let's start moving in the right direction where Saudi Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, the list goes on because it's long. If they are receiving tens of billions of dollars of advanced weaponry and U.S. military assistance, it's only reasonable for us to say, look, if you want our weapons or our military assistance, that's fine. We just want to ask for certain things in return. And one of those things is like kill and arrest your people less. If you don't want to do that, then there will be consequences. Now, people will say, oh, my God, well, that's going to lead to a breach in the relationship. You know who should be worried about a breach in the relationship? These weaker regimes. I mean, let's. So part of my overarching premise is that we forget that we are America and we act like, oh, my God, what if we anger the Saudis? They should be concerned about angering us. I want to flip that because there is no justification for the kind of humiliating prostration that Joe Biden did over the summer when he paid tribute to Mohammed bin Salman. You know, if an alien just saw that moment from outer space and had no prior context, they'd probably assume that Saudi Arabia was the world's superpower and we were like some third world backwater. And they would be, you know, they would be right to assume that. So there's like something, something is fundamentally wrong with how we view this. If we, if we immediately suspended spare parts and maintenance to the Saudis or the Egyptians, it wouldn't ground their military overnight, but it would ground their military like in the matter of weeks that without spare yeah. parts and maintenance, they can't actually run their their tanks and jets and other advanced equipment. Right. We have that leverage. We just choose not to use it because we're scared because, you know, oh, my God, like what's going to happen? There's going to be controversy. Right. So, and so just, one one thing I want to just quickly point out is as I understand it, there's a big academic literature arguing that sanctions don't really work well against dictatorships. But I, I guess your argument is that we we are so intertwined with these countries, they're so dependent on us, that if we really wanted to just completely cut off aid, they actually would have to blink. And this is a case where yeah. I guess you could call it a kind of sanction would work. And is that it, just because the 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 the, the the nature of the relationship is different than say U.S. and Russia. Like like why is it that you? Yeah, think the nature of the bilateral relationship is different. So sanctions yeah. are going to be a very different question as applied to Russia or China. I mean, these right. are right. junior junior partners in what is effectively a hierarchical relationship. We provide them a security umbrella. Also, I'm not really calling for sanctioning them in the way we sanction certain other countries. Yeah. It's about removing certain benefits that we give to them that they like. And they are they are allies. So there's also there's also like a sense of like tough love. Like and if we take the premise that they need us more than we need them, it starts to make it starts to make more sense. We just have to get our heads around that idea that, you know, we're fucking America. I mean, not to be like too rah-rah, like, you know, whatever, patriotic, jingoistic about it. But I think it's okay to kind of take a step back and say, we are America. It's okay for us to believe in certain things. We are not only politically superior to any autocracy in the world, we are also morally superior to any autocracy in the world for the simple reason 
that we are a democracy, whatever our flaws might be. So there has to be some level of confidence and self-assurance if we're in this perpetual mode of self-doubt. And you see this in different ways from the right and the left for quite different reasons. They all lead to some version of America first. And I think that completely miss, you know, it's an abdication of, you know, a sort of special providence, if you will. Right. And in this sense, maybe like, I don't mean to sound messianic about it, but it's also a question of what do we want the world to look like in 20 or 30 years? We're all going to be affected by that. There is an ongoing confrontation with China. So to pretend that the ideological factor isn't paramount is putting our heads in the sand. And we're seeing day in and day out the fundamental weakness of autocratic regimes. I mean, look at China. Finally, the Chinese model has been like literally disproven. Like we shouldn't have had to even discuss that. The fact that there were Americans who were tempted by this model is itself a sort of indictment on a certain kind of American elite that likes technocratic efficiency. But, you know, autocracies can't reverse course easily. They can't self-correct. They can't, they don't have any clear mechanisms to be responsive to their own public. So it's kind of this ad hoc, oh, if people protest, we'll ease things and then we'll just like, oh, then we're done. Right. And then it's sort of like back to this one person personalistic rule. And I don't think anyone is looking at China or Russia now, the two most prominent authoritarian yeah. regimes, and saying to themselves, oh, authoritarianism is winning out in this in this sort of broader right. struggle about systems of government. So I think all of like all of these things are interconnected in complicated ways. But at the very least, Americans have to believe in America. I agree with that. Aaron, what's uh, what's your takeaway from the conversation? Yeah, there's a lot here. I'll just leave with one takeaway, which is I'm, I both think Shadi is totally right to distinguish democracy and liberalism and that, that, you know, your prioritization of one or the other value really will have very different policy implications. I think that's true. I also am struck that, as I said at the start, throughout the conversation, I think the normative justification for democracy Shadi has about sort of every individual's vote or preferences counting. Yes, it's not it's not liberal, but there there is an element of, you know, preference satisfaction and and a focus on individual autonomy and the right of each person to decide something. I, I guess I, I'm left thinking that there may be more of a kind of common genealogy between certain aspects of liberalism and certain aspects of democracy than maybe we think. And that doesn't negate Shadi's thesis, but I, I think it's an important complement to it. And it's useful to see how kind of the same sorts of premises can can lead to very different ideological systems depending on how you frame them and apply them. Charles, what's your what's your take? Yeah, I I, I sort of agree. You know, I I I buy that there are. There, 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 hmm. I disagree that democracy is is uh, distinguished from liberalism as making making concessions to liberalism involves making more concession to values. I do tend to think that they're sort of they're they're, they're both value systems. The distinction is you know that they they are in tension, and I think we sort of prodded at we sort of prodded at some of the tensions. I guess I don't think you need to take an absolutist position on either of them. I like some components of liberalism. Yeah, I agree. It's pretty cool, but I also like some components of democracy. Voting is pretty cool. So, so you know, I'm in, I'm in either direction. Even though, even though you don't do it, Charles. I'm 
vote. I voted as as we discussed at the beginning. I vote frequently. With that, why not? Well, why don't we do some quick recommendations, Aaron? What are you recommending for listeners? This yeah, week? I'll I'll recommend two. One is Shadi's another book by Shadi called Islam with Exceptionalism, which does a good job of explaining kind of what Islam is, Islamism is, and how a lot of what we see is kind of anti seemingly reactionary or anti-modern aspects of the Middle East actually came about are, are in themselves products of modernity. And, and he, he does a good job of complicating the conventional narrative of Islamism and kind of Muslim influence in politics that some people in the United States have. And the other thing I'll recommend is Carl Schmitt's Crisis of Parliamentary Democracy, especially his discussion of what democracy is. I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but he does do a good job of kind of swatting down these stupid liberal arguments of, oh, such and such, like the United States is in a real democracy. He has this great job where he's like, no, 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 no. Like if democracy means anything, clearly all of these countries you think are democracies are democracies. And it doesn't really matter if they denied suffrage to X, Y, or Z group. Clearly as an ideal type, you know, there's a meaningful sense in which even pre-civil rights United States is a democracy. It's an interest. It, I think he does make a compelling case for that. And you should, uh, you should check it out. Charles, what's your recommendation? You know, I'm going to recommend a recent column by former institutionalized guest Ross Douthat about medical assistance and dying regime in Canada. Ross is, I think, a number of retrenching critiques that touch on many of the issues that we've discussed today, the sort of excesses of liberalism and the ways in which it can go wrong. So I think it's a, it's, it's a valuable I don't know, compliment. Shadi, do you have any recommendations for our listeners from your own work or others? Ah, okay. I wasn't prepared for that. I will say that I started a new Substack if people want to get some of my more impressionistic, half-formed thoughts here and there. And also, a really cool thing that I'm excited about, I, I started co-hosting another podcast called Zealots at the Gate, which I do with an evangelical theologian. It's sort of like a Muslim evangelical roadshow where we try to model how to discuss and debate with deep difference because we do have profound theological and political divides. But so that it, for people who are interested in that sort of thing, you can find it on your favorite podcast platform, Zealots at the Gate. And then my substack is shadihamid.substack.com. In terms of things that I have been reading that I'm into, what was it? Yeah, I don't know if your I don't know if your listeners will be into this, but I'm rereading a book by a political theorist named Andrew March. It's called The Caliphate of Man. It's about how some Islamist parties are taking the idea of the caliphate and democratizing it. It's, there's a lot to say about it, but it's a really interesting book for people who are more interest who are, you know, intrigued by the question of Islam's role in public life and the historical role of the caliphate and what it might mean today. I took a class with March when he was a professor at Yale. Oh, wow. He a he's a he's a fun guy. Uh, yeah, he is. He, yeah, yeah. Had a penchant for saying controversial, mildly politically incorrect things in class that probably if he did it a few years later would get him in trouble or me too. But but it, which made him a great, a great teacher, to be clear. But anyway, thank you. Thank you, Shadi. Thanks so much for having me. Really yeah. enjoyed it. Thank you, Shadi, for, for joining us. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, declarations of war that you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's about all the time that we have. So until next time, I'm Charles Fain Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. 
and you've been listening to Institutionalized. I hope you'll join us again soon.